So without any further delay, I think we'll get started. So um, I just want to firstly thank very much uh, Dr. Sharon Sykes for joining us this evening. Uh, Sharon is a GP who's been living in Port Macquarie, beautiful part of the world since 2007, uh, following 18 years of service with the Royal Australian Air Force. Uh, graduated from the University of Queensland in 2000, uh, FRC GP in 2010, uh, has been involved in medical education since 2009 and for the last seven years specifically has been supporting the domestic violence specialist service uh, in her area. Um, Sharon's also uh, contributed to the upcoming women's health uh, program that we've got, we're going to be delivering from July later this year. But one of the areas that's obviously very topical right now is around identifying, identifying and obviously supporting victims of uh, domestic violence or domestic abuse. I mean, I think we're all very conscious with COVID. Um, a lot of people have probably been locked away with some of their loved ones who are perhaps uh, not so nice to them in that particular situation. Uh, and whilst there may be some easing of some of these restrictions, I think once again, we all understand that social distancing and all the potential risk for us having to go back into some form of lockdown, depending if um, how the, uh, the virus goes in the future is a real risk and or threat. And I think that it's a very pertinent subject and I really do want to thank Sharon very much for your time today and invite you to uh, conduct your presentation. Thank you very much. Thank you, Paul. Uh, as Paul said, um, my name is uh, Dr Sharon Sykes and I uh, live in Port Macquarie and thank you all for joining me. The topic of my discussion tonight is entitled Why Doesn't She Just Leave? A Guide for General Practitioners in Screening for and Supporting Victims of Domestic Violence. Now, I'm going to start by saying that I'm by no means a specialist in this field, um, but I have spent the last seven years supporting the Domestic Violence Specialist Service in my region. The women working in that um, organisation have taught me a lot, uh, and I thank them for their advice. Um, it's good to know that in these areas, that as a general practitioner, there's lots of support organisations available to help us. Before I go any further in this topic, I'd like to just um, have a disclaimer that says, for the purpose of this talk, um, I'll be restricting my definition of violence to be that perpetrated by an intimate partner on a woman. Um, I know, of course, men can be victims of domestic violence, as unfortunately can children, but I won't be covering either of these topics, uh, populations tonight. So, in this time of social distancing and isolation, there has been concern raised that a potential result may be an increase of domestic violence. So, I did a simple Google search um, on increase in domestic violence during COVID. And as you can see on this slide, I got 2,730,000 results. Uh, so there definitely is a lot of discussion going on about this topic. Some worrying statistics so far. On March 31st this year, New South Wales Attorney General Mark Speakman stated that Google searches about domestic violence had increased by 75% since the first recorded COVID-19 cases in the state. The UK's largest domestic abuse charity, Refuge, reported a 700% increase in calls to its helpline in a single day. And according to at least one report, the number of domestic violence cases reported to a police station in Hubei province, China, tripled in February 2020 compared to the same period in the previous year. So why might there be an increase in domestic violence during the COVID pandemic? There's a few suggested causes, some of which are the increased stresses due to job loss or strained finances. It's been very well documented that uh, violence increases during times of any increased stress. 
there's reduced access to resources. Uh, medical services are increasingly being overwhelmed with managing sufferers of COVID-19 and have limited time to devote to other uh, conditions. There's organisations that support domestic violence, such as refuges, have had to limit capacity of operations just due to um, social distancing laws. Uh, there's fewer opportunities to find safety. Um, they are disconnected from social support systems. And some countries even have extreme restrictions on being able to leave the house. So that reduces the victim's ability to, to flee if there's a problem. Add that to the already terrible instances of domestic violence in normal times. The World Health Organization has estimated that about one third of women worldwide have experienced some form of physical or sexual violence by their intimate partner in their lifetime. And in Australia, approximately one quarter of all women have experienced at least one incidence of violence by their intimate partner. And on average, one woman a week is killed by her intimate partner. Now we've had about um, 65 or so deaths from COVID um, in Australia so far. One woman a week is killed by her intimate partner, about 50 a year. So it's um, as big a problem as the current COVID problem. So how can you help as a general practitioner? Well, the first thing we need to be really aware of the potential that all our patients could be victims of domestic violence. We need to have a really high index of suspicion. Um, it's estimated that every week, our GP sees up to five women who have been abused by their partners, and that one in 10 women attending a general practice will have been afraid of their partners in the previous 12 months. Women often make their first disclosure of domestic violence to their GP, and in fact, the GP may be the only person they ever tell. And they won't tell you if you're not open to be told. How you respond to that disclosure may have a significant impact on what that woman does next. So your roles as a general practitioner in, in overcoming domestic violence can be rolled into four different topics. Prevention, early identification, responding to a disclosure and follow up and support to those experiencing the health effects of violence and abuse. So I'm gonna break those down a little bit for everybody. Prevention. Now prevention is a whole of community effort. We all need to be advocates for the eradication of violence against women. As a primary health organization, there's some things you might consider could be training your staff in respectful relationships. Acknowledging as, that as an, uh, as an organisation that you do not accept anything of violence against women, you could display posters or do some other form of documentation. You could consider forming partnerships with other organisations that are striving to end violence against women. Early identification. Most presentations of domestic violence are hidden and will probably not be the obvious black eye. The signs have, could be really, really subtle and being alert to them is really, really important. Here are some of the indicators 
that may present. So some of the physical indicators could be unexplained bruising, injuries in hidden areas, accidents occurring during pregnancy. Pregnancy is a really, really high risk time for, that, for violence. Bite marks, any unusual burns that might turn up or sexually transmitted infections. Some of the behavioural psychological signs that you might see, frequent presentations, cancellations or no-shows to the general practitioner, anxiety, insomnia, self-harm, an evasive or a poor historian about the injuries that you're seeing, her partner's present at the consultation or he does most of the talking, really big indicator, social isolation or reluctance to follow advice. Now in these times of social distancing and increased isolation, these indicators can be even less obvious um, and really difficult for us to find. Um, so it's really important to keep abuse as a differential diagnosis in your mind. When, while we're doing more telehealth, I hope some of you are still doing that, while we're doing more telehealth, you don't even have control of the, um, the consult. And so the nonverbal cues, really, really, really more difficult to pick up on. Very subtle. So if you suspect abuse, the first thing you should do is ask an indirect question, such as how are things at home? Or how are you and your partner getting along? Now, one of the things we've introduced in our practice is when we're doing um, wellbeing checks during COVID, one of the things I've asked my, my nurses to ask every person is, uh, do you feel safe in your own home? Uh, and that's just a very simple question, get a yes or a no answer. Uh, oops, sorry. Um, if you're still concerned, um, then we consider asking a direct question such as, are there times when you're scared of your partner? Does the way your partner treats you make you feel sad or scared? And has your partner ever forced you to have sex when you didn't want to? Depends on the topic, but you'll find some sort of indirect question that can help you where your antenna are up. Of course, if you're doing telehealth, you must ensure the woman is alone or safe uh, when you're asking such questions. Um, you don't want to be asking this question while you're you know, talking to her at home only to find out that a partner's standing right behind her. Remember, in that situation, you as the clinician aren't in control of, this, of the, the surrounds and the environment. So what do you do if you get a disclosure from a woman? Well, this becomes really, really important because what you do next will determine whether she opens up uh, or whether she shuts down. So you firstly have to listen respectfully respectfully and validate her experience. You need to ensure confidentiality, except of course for any mandatory reporting requirements that we have. You should clearly state to her that any violence is unacceptable and that this is not her fault. You should offer to support her, to consider her options. You don't make the decisions for her. You should consider her safety and that of any children, once again, mandatory reporting requirements as necessary. You should consider referral to specialist agencies for help. And most importantly, you need to make a detailed record of the consult 
and any physical findings because they may be needed for legal purposes in the future. Now, waste women do not present to the general practitioner in crisis. They often require, you know, multiple visits, multiple times for you to just talk to them about what they do, consider referring them to other support organisations for legal or financial or psychological support. Um, but you need to consider their safety. So this is where it comes down to safety planning. Now a safety plan revolves around firstly, making a risk assessment. Uh, how much is she likely to have be exposed to further violence. So you assess any evidence of harm, including any threats. You ask her what her perception is of her risk, and then you consider what your professional judgment is of her immediate risk. You engage her in her decision-making. Once again, you don't wanna be any other person that tells her what she has to do. She already having that at home with her, with, with her violent partner. You then next have to assess her immediate safety. Yeah, does she feel safe to go home? Is, are the children safe? Even if she's in your office, does she need an alternative exit to the building? You know, this is here and now, you know, is she safe to go home? If she's not in immediate danger, then you need to consider what to do for her future safety. Things you should consider are, has her partner cha behaviour changed or worsened recently? Has she considered an AVO? Would she like to get legal advice? Can you refer her down that pathway? Does she have a safe place to go to if the situation worsens? Ha has she got an escape plan? Now, escape plan is, is personal and, uh, and very varied, but it may include things like keeping her keys on her person at all times, having a safe house that she can access at any time of the day or night, you know, two in the morning, I just, you know, I know where they, I've got their key and I just walk in the door and sleep in their house. It may be having specific emergency phone numbers in her phone. Um, it, that may even be yours if, if, if necessary. I've had to help women devise some really quite detailed escape plans um, over my time that, that, that um, you wouldn't even think if you're not in that situation, but it's about helping them through and saying, okay, if this happens, what then? Um, uh, her, during COVID, though, unfortunately, her escape plan could be really restricted. You know, places are locked up. We're not allowed to go anywhere. Um, she may have limited options available for her to leave or even contact any other support person. So this is the time where you, as the GP, have to sit down with her in whatever way you can and really consider supporting and helping her with her decision making. It's a time for kind of thinking outside the box and, and thinking what options have we got available to us right now. So there's always an option for her to stay in her present location. Now, this gives a voice to the often heard lament in domestic violence services um, why doesn't she just leave? And as you saw, that was a topic of my, of my talk tonight. Now, this has been something people have said for many years and many times. Now, I'll caution everybody right now to try and avoid the thoughts and the words because it can be considered victim blaming. 
Women stay in abusive relationships for many, many reasons. Some of them, they still love their partner. They'll tell you that doesn't matter what he's done, they still love him. They often have a belief that it's their fault, that their partner is only abusive because they've provoked him or that they've done something wrong. They may be there for financial reasons. They may not know how to get out of that when they can't pay for their, anything else. They may have a belief that the children need to be with both their parents. Their partner might have promised to get help and they believe him. Or even simply, it's her home. She's only ever lived there. And why should she have to leave her home? It's important for us as GPs to support the decision-making of the women and help her into her future. The immediate goal, we have to remember always though in any of this, is ensuring her safety and that of any children. So what support services are available to help you and your patient? Thankfully, there's a lot. The Women's Legal Service is a nationwide network of specialty legal services for women. There's the Domestic Violence Helpline Australia, 1-800-RESPECT. They advertise quite a lot. They have a wealth of information for women to find out, you know, where to access and how to access stuff. Great for general practitioners too. There's the Domestic Violence Specialist Services uh, in almost every area. Uh, I encourage you all, if you haven't already done it, to find out who you're, where you're, yours are and how to access them. Gone are the days where women's uh, services or women's violence services are secretive and hidden away in back rooms. They're open and available to people because they want women to know where to find them. Centrelink can provide crisis payments. So for those women who haven't got any money, Centrelink's your option. And there's even tenancy support. Uh, I, I don't know if you're all aware, but there is an ability for people to break their lease immediately with a medical practitioner declaration form if they're victims of domestic violence. It's um, an easily available form and worthwhile doing. So once you've helped your woman through her immediate crisis and her initial disclosure, and she's been supported to make some decisions about her future, obviously your role as her general practitioner continues. You need to offer her ongoing support for her other emotional and physical needs. You need to continue to support her in that decision-making through the rest of her time. You need to help her build her emotional strength. Remember, she's been through a time where she's been, you know, battered and bruised emotionally and physically and isn't all that good at making emotional decisions. You need to always ensure her ongoing confidentiality. You need to respect her right to make decisions even though you may not agree with them. I find this is really a really important topic. You know, um, I use those languages to people all the time. I say, look, I may not agree with your decision, but I respect your right to make it and I'll walk the walk with you. You need to ensure that you are just not another person who wished they'd done something earlier and read about it in the newspaper the next day. So in summary, domestic violence is widespread, affects 30% of women worldwide and about 25% of women in Australia. 
and it's really becoming apparent that the current COVID-19 restrictions are already making a already bad situation worse. As a general practitioner, you need to be aware that women will often make their first disclosure to you, but you need to be available for them too. You have a role in screening and early identification of domestic violence. You also have a role as being a community advocate for the complete eradication of violence against women. Women need to be supported in their decision-making following a disclosure of domestic violence. And remember, there are many support services available to help. You don't have to do it on your own. Here are a couple of useful resources that I wanted to um, provide for everybody. Um, the first is a World Health Organization uh, document that's been put out about on COVID and increased violence against women. It's a one-page, two-page document, really quite interesting. The second is a toolkit put out by the Women's Legal Service of New South Wales, uh, fairly self-explanatory, when she talks to you about violence, a toolkit for general practitioners. Now, this is a fabulous resource. It's available online, or if you're an old oldie like me and you like the paper stuff, you can even write to them and they'll send you the paper version of it. I use this resource frequently and refer back to it often. So that rounds out my rather rapid fire talk relating to a general practitioner's role in supporting victims of domestic violence, both in normal times and in the times of COVID-19. And I'm happy to take any questions. Awesome. Thank you very much, Sharon. Um, so I do have um, a number of questions and I, uh, there's probably actually a couple that I'll put together because they are similar. Let me just pull them up, sorry. Um, but just a reminder to everybody, if anyone's got any, wants to ask any questions as well, down the bottom of your Zoom screen, right down the middle is a Q&A box. If you click on that, you can type in your question. Uh, and if you're on a tablet, it's in the top right hand corner. Um, so the first question I've got here is, where would you say the abuse starts? I mean, often women are confused and normalise certain behaviours. Um, you do, I, I know you're just moderating the question, but does the question mean, does, where does it, like, who, who, who causes it? Um, well, I, suppose, I, suppose, I suppose the conversation, I suppose that the, you know, some people will normalise behaviours and not say, would be abusive, but they are. So I suppose that the question would be oh. typically, typically, you know, how does it start, or maybe what's the most common uh, aspect of identifying, you know, an abusive relationship or an okay. abuse in a relationship. What constitutes abuse? Now, there's a World Health Organization definition for domestic abuse or domestic violence, and it's anything that is um, psychologically or emotionally distressing, and that you don't have any control over. So it's, it's based on the opinion of the person being abused, not the person doing the abusing. And that's a really important thing for people to be aware of. The, the abuser will often say, oh, it wasn't abusive. I didn't, I meant it only to be fun or I meant it as a joke. If the person feels it's abusive, then it is abusive. Doesn't necessarily mean that all abuse needs to be, you know, ter terrible and, and, and violent. Most of the abuse we see is psychological. Uh, the second most common abuse we see is financial, so withholding money. Um, so we don't usually see, as I said, the black eyes. Okay. The, the second round of questions, or there's, a, there's two questions that are similar, but I'm going to sort of go to it's around, I suppose, cultural differences. Mm -hmm. 
because obviously once again, they're different cultures. So um, I said, so um, how do you help patients from different cultural backgrounds to show symptoms of abuse? Well, it's, it's, it's about being, uh, doing it in a culturally aware way. Um, if it, it, they, they deserve the same supports and the same resources available to them. Uh, I don't believe, and I, and I absolutely know I'm a white Anglo-Saxon female, I don't believe that there is any uh, justification for abusive behaviour in any culture. Uh, but when I'm helping my, my women from other cultures, I'll often try and find them uh, organisations that work within that culture if, if, they're, if they're available. Uh, but I also know that my domestic violence specialist services women are incredibly good at, at supporting women in other organisations. So I'd say if you're in that sort of field, then ask your um, specialist organisations for support if you don't know. Okay. No, that's very good. And there was another question that was very similar around once again, um, you know, I suppose once again from cultural backgrounds and really how to manage um, those as, as obviously as patients, because I, I mean, there would be obviously cultural differences in that sense. And obviously once again, what constitutes abuse or not. Um, so uh, how do you manage children who show signs of abuse? Do you speak to the parents first or do you let the authorities? So, well, as I, I said, this talk wasn't based on child abuse. So I was, yeah. I was quite, quite yeah. specific about not talking about child abuse because it's very different. There's a whole lot of mandatory reporting requirements revolving around child abuse. What I'd say to everybody is if you even suspect, certainly in Australia, and I know that there's people watching this that aren't in Australia, but certainly in Australia, there are mandatory reporting requirements even for suspected child abuse. Hmm. You don't have to I talk think, to think, parents before you, before you yeah. report them. I understand. I think it was probably more if the, the, the child turned up with the, you know, with the mother and obviously you would suspect because, I mean, I forget the abuse could be not necessarily only directed towards their... No. Uh, you know, to obviously it it frequently female. isn't. So usually the, the, the woman and the children come together. So yeah. uh, you'll normally have to take one with the other. Okay, um, next question is related to men. So we're going to avoid them because we obviously... Um, I can talk about uh, men. Well, I suppose, so I suppose how do you identify and help men who are also abuse victims? Is yeah, it the same, look, method, same methodology or is there something exactly. different about men? Uh, well, it's rare. You know, I, I, as I said at the beginning, of course, um, men can be victims of violence and we don't ever say that. But it, it, when you look at the statistics, it is actually incredibly rare um, compared to women. But exactly the same, you follow the same pathways. You've just got to find them an organisation that works for them uh, and, and support them in exactly the same way. Uh, I just would, instead of all my things that say women, I would reinforce men. And are men more difficult to have these conversations with, or is it just generally a difficult conversation to have per se because of, I suppose, the stigma that's attached to, to it? It's, I, I don't have a lot of problems talking or having men open up to me about, about violence. Once again, as I said, it's quite rare, but I, the ones that I've had don't seem to be all that... Uh, that um, reticent, it's that doctor-patient relationship. If you've got a good doctor-patient relationship, then often they will open up. Um, I find the other way, then um, accepting that they were abusers, quite a difficult consult to have, you know, when, yeah. you, when I've had to confront them about their abusive behaviour, that's a much more difficult conversation to have. 
Okay. Um, and uh, how do you um, how do you treat patients who suffer from psychological abuse from their partner, but there's no physical signs? Um, I suppose you would, mm -hmm. you know, yep. have picked up obviously clearly through their demeanour or otherwise. Um, how do you manage those? Yeah, psych as I said before, psychological abuse is probably the most common form of abuse, um, or psychological, I call it emotional abuse, um, which is uh, restricting their access to you know, family and friends, uh, their ability to be their self-worth, so telling, telling them that they're, that they're useless and worthless. Um, it's often something that women don't realise often is abuse. So it's, it can be quite subtle and I often pick it up just by some of the things that they say and, and they're the ones that don't even realise they're being abused. You know, I'll say to them, do you realise that, you know, that, that that could be considered abuse? And, and it's interesting when you sometimes see the light bulb go off. So you've got to have your, what I call your GP antenna uh, uh, ready and open and, and just asking. It's a little bit like we're always taught about suicidality, that if you ask a direct question, you will often get a direct answer. So don't be afraid, the evidence is there, don't be afraid to ask the direct question, do you feel safe? Or does something your partner does to you make you feel sad? And you'll usually get an answer. Beautiful. Um, and then the other one was around, um, how do you manage patients who deny they're being abused even though there's physical signs or there's obvious signs? How do I manage them? I mm. allow them to make the, the decision and the choices. I will say to them, look, this looks suspicious to me, but if they're not ready to make a, a disclosure, then they have absolutely every right not to. Unless it's a child, if it's a child being, you know, with there's mandatory reporting rights, but if a woman doesn't want to do anything about being in an abusive relationship and she doesn't actually want to go down the pathway of disclosing, you, you, you can't yeah. force her to do that. Um, I, I use language like, that's okay. If you ever want to talk to me about it, you know where I am. Yeah. Um, and then what techniques, so this is the last question I've got, is that uh, what techniques can doctors employ to create a more comfortable environment or to make it known um, to safe place to seek help in a way that's not counterintuitive? For those who may not be ready yet to seek help, um, uh, how do we know to, to build that relationship when we see the signs? Great question. A uh, couple of things I, I do is I normalise it. I have it as part of my standard question with any um, uh, um, women's checks, well, women's checks. So it's a standard question in one of my women's checks. So they know they're going to get asked it, you know, every time they're talking to me about it. I will usually, if I'm doing a, a care plan, uh, it's a standard question I ask. So it's a normalised question and my, my patients get used to hearing the question. So they know that, you know, if they can... So the more times you ask that question, the more chance you have that, that if something's going wrong, they will say and they will come and tell you. Um, I certainly have patients come in booked for what I think is probably a blood pressure check that wander in and sit down at my desk and I go, oh, here's my blood pressure, okay, here's your blood pressure check. And then they'll just start talking to me about something that I didn't even know existed because they've just worked up the courage to turn up. So you build it up over time. And, and, uh, and as I said before, making the, the practice as um, well known as not accepting violence against women in everything the practice does is a really important thing so that people know it's a safe place to go to. Beautiful.
Beautiful. All right, one last one that just snuck in. Is it common for abusers to be present, uh, I suppose, when, um, when obviously all this in a, in a consult? Right? Yeah. Well, you know, it certainly happens. You know, yeah. um, certainly if they're being, if, if they're, one of them, the main things abusers do is is control, and so one of the things that control does is they is they ensure that they're there so that things can't happen around them. One of the suggestions I I make to people when I'm talking about this um, is, especially when it's your consulting room, it's a little bit more tricky now we're doing health um, over the web, but when it's your consulting room, always remember that you as the doctor have, have the right to control your own consulting room and you have the right to say who can be in that consulting room with you. And so if you don't want that person in the room, then um, Ruth, and I must admit, sometimes I'm a bit uh, sneaky uh, sometimes I'll need a ECG on said woman uh, and I'll take her out to the nursing room um, and uh, so find all sorts of sneaky ways to, uh, to remove her from her partner if I want to speak to her alone. So feel free to be sneaky. I use my nurses all the time and say, oh, I just need to go over and, you know, bring this person and check something with the nurses. So that's a little cheeky little thing you can use. Wonderful. All right. What a great way to finish with that. Um, so, uh, Sharon, can I thank you very, very much for your uh, time tonight. Uh, just to remind everybody who's watching, we'll be um, uh, sending this, this uh, webinar out as a recording tomorrow. Uh, so please share with your colleagues. And uh, in fact, I also suggest your staff as well, because I'm sure they will be able to pick up the signs. And it's obviously something that's very important and pertinent at this point in time that we do obviously help support, well, obviously women obviously in this focus, but obviously anyone who's um, suffering obviously psychological or physical abuse, it's certainly something that we should never tolerate. Um, it's part of being a, a human on this earth. So Sharon, thank you very much for your time. Thanks everybody else for participating. And uh, just a reminder on Monday, we'll be doing our weekly update with Professor David Wilkinson on the uh, COVID epidemic and what it means. And uh, hopefully, as I said, Australia seems to be managing it reasonably well. So I hope it'll be let out soon, but uh, you know, until, until we have a vaccine, I'm sure this will be part of our lives uh, for the near future at least. So anyway, thanks very much for your time tonight, Sharon. And thank you everybody for joining us. Thank you.